So I want to begin today uh, with the question, um, how do you first give? How do you first give encouragement? Um, what's your encouragement language, to put it another way? And on the flip side, as we all need encouragement and, and want to receive encouragement, um, how do you receive encouragement? What's your receiving encouragement language? All of us have a giving and receiving language when it comes to encouragement. Uh, as an example, my uh, boy, well, I, I try. I try to uh, model for my children um, being an encouraging person. I try to encourage them. And my boy typically, right after Sunday service, he'll just come right up to me. I remember the first time he did this. And he stood beside me, just started patting my back, said, good job today, Dad, good sermon, right? And, and I said, oh, uh, you were in the service? Like, no, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then I asked, well, how, did, how do you know I did a good job? Like, I don't know, just good job, Dad, I believe in you, <laughs> right? So in that moment, I'm thinking, ah, just take it. I'll take whatever encouragement I can get. But also, also wondering, okay, am I modeling empty flattery to my children? Uh, and so wondering, what, what, what's encouragement? How do you give encouragement? How do you receive encouragement? Um, just this past week, I was talking to a friend and just sharing a little bit openly about something I'm going through. And they said, I understand, but I can't help. <laughs> right? So here's someone who's trying to understand and empathize, but fully admitting I'm helpless to help you. So how do you give and receive encouragement? Some of us, typically, we feel encouraged or we give encouragement through appreciation and we want to be appreciated through appreciation. So where we uh, go out of our way to not take someone for granted and, and then we give acts of kindness and service and we're appreciating that way, we also want to be appreciated. Some of us, our language is all about generosity and gifts. Uh, some of us, we, we feel loved and special if someone has thought about deeply that one thing that we want or need, and, and they foreknow it, and they provide it, and like, wow. And also, there's just something in us. The way we naturally express encouragement is to be able to give that big, audacious gift. For some of us, it's all about validation, and more specifically, a validation of vision, we have something we're working towards, we're aiming towards, we have a passion to, to actualize something in our lives, and to have someone come along and deeply believe in you, to deeply validate what you're pursuing, and to say, I believe in you. And then some of us still, it's all about empathy. We feel encouraged, or the way we try to encourage others is, is to sincerely listen. And if we feel that our feelings are understood, then we're encouraged. We don't need the gifts. We don't need the appreciation. We just want to be understood. And that's how we try to encourage others as well. Now, to summarize today's passage, um, I want to offer you this, this prayer. And if you can learn to pray this type of prayer, the idea behind this prayer, I think we're getting a hold of what, what Paul wants us to uh, know today. Uh, and it's this, Lord, use me. Use me to encourage hearts even as you have encouraged me. That's Christian encouragement, that you are able to overflow encouragement to others. Even if you were raised in a very critical environment, your parents were tough, tough and austere and, and very uh, uh, cheap on encouraging words, that you encounter Christ and you experience his great encouragement towards you. And because of that, even despite your past, it changes your heart, and you become an encourager yourself. So I want to ask two questions today of the passage. First, why, why does specifically the Christ follower, 
the Christian. Why, why do we need encouragement? Yes, every human being needs encouragement. But I think Paul today is getting at something very specific for the Christ follower. Why does the Christ follower need encouragement? And second, uh, why does, or how, sorry, how does a Christ follower encourage the heart? I'm just trying to take a page from Paul's notes. He always gives some theology and some beautiful reason to, to, to just follow Christ, and then he shows us how, usually in his letters in the second half, practically how do we follow him in the day-to-day. So let's get into the first question. Why does the Christ follower need encouragement? And I think right off the bat, from the beginning of today's passage, we need encouragement through suffering. We need encouragement through suffering. Now, it's a very specific type of suffering, Because everyone in this world suffers. No human being is immune to suffering, is exempt uh, from suffering. But the Christian, there's a specific type of suffering and a reason why we need encouragement through suffering. So Paul here, as he continues to write, his thought develops to saying in verse 24, Now I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings. This word rejoice, it's mind-boggling because it means to be exceedingly glad. When's the last time you were exceedingly glad in your suffering? Whatever degree of suffering, whatever form of suffering, maybe it's stress at work. Maybe you're at odds with a loved one in a relationship right now. Maybe just this unforeseen circumstance has come and just surprised you, just um, you know, sucker punched you in life, and, and, and you are suffering. But can you say, I exceedingly am glad in that suffering. And so Paul here, first, he's modeling, he's modeling faith that as we walk with Christ, something happens inside of us that we can genuinely, sincerely, he's not in denial here. Paul is not spiritualizing in denial. He genuinely felt an exceedingly glad joy and gladness in his suffering. And we get a little bit of a clue from the word itself Paul specifically chooses this word because in the etymology of it, it shares the same root as the word for grace. And this rejoicing, this gladness, the whole idea is that it's a gladness because you've experienced some kind of grace in your life. And so what he's saying is, because of some grace in my life, I can still be happy in the midst of my difficulty, my sufferings. And so he's modeling himself even in his suffering He needs encouragement. He's, in fact, experiencing some encouragement. And he also wants the Colossians, in their own way, they were suffering as well. And he wants them to know that they need suffering, they're due, sorry, they need encouragement, excuse me, and they are due encouragement through their suffering. And now he goes on, as he explains, he elaborates, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And so herein is a principle of Christian suffering. And I think this is a uniquely Christian suffering. The real, the most beautiful essence of this kind of suffering that I'm about to uh, explain is in Christianity. And when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, a characteristic of Christian suffering is that we suffer together. We suffer together. This isn't the whole, uh, you know, cynical adage, misery loves company. It's not that Christians get together and we have a pity party. It's not that. But it's the kind of suffering that where my Muslim neighbor says to me, one thing you guys have as Christians that I feel I haven't experienced in my religion is when I see someone suffering, I've witnessed it with my own eyes. 
when a Christian is suffering, you guys flock together and you are community. You have something, you have this thing of community that, that I haven't experienced, the level of it, the quality of it that I have in my own religion. And so genuine Christianity, when grace truly gets a hold of you and you realize that God himself has suffered with you, then we long to suffer with one another. To encourage Trinity Grace Church, one thing I've witnessed with my own eyes is just the speed with which our family responds to each other's needs, whether it's through prayer or material needs. And I know that is God the Father's heart is so proud of that because that is the love of Christ manifesting itself. And as we, similar to Paul, could simply say, for your sake, I'm willing to walk beside you, even suffer myself a little bit, perhaps sacrifice my time, my resources for your sake, because we're called to suffer together. Now, he goes on to elaborate and and to unpack this whole notion of, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And here comes this curious phrase, this confusing phrase. And in my flesh, he's about to explain what he's actually doing here. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And so his motivation to suffer together and to find encouragement in suffering, to rejoice in suffering, is right here. He's willing to rejoice in his suffering because in Paul's mind, the reason behind his suffering and for their sake is because he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what does that mean? First, let's clarify what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus' affliction on earth, that his crucifixion is lacking. That is not what it means. It doesn't mean that you have to buy some upgrade, an extra package to your salvation so that your atonement is now perfected. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, and the best clue, it's going to take a little bit of unpacking, but let's begin with this thought first of all. First, notice, while Paul says what is lacking, that's the confusing part, but let's notice what he's saying here, in Christ's affliction, in Christ's afflictions. I love what John Stott says. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for Christ's afflictions. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? And what John Stott, when he was, the late John Stott, when he was here, what he was trying to get across is that we might, you and I, in our suffering, from having a fever and feeling the body pains and and wishing this would just pass to even greater levels and degrees of suffering to the Christian brother and sister who is being persecuted and their actual life is on the line because they're living in an antagonistic regime against Christianity. Whatever degree of suffering, we might not be able to answer the question, why? Why, God? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? We might not be able to answer that. But what John Stott is getting at, and I agree with him, I hope you do as well, is that we can never question that God doesn't know suffering himself. We can never question that God is oblivious to suffering. And then what that means is we can never question that God loves you. God loves me. Because he proved in the flesh as a human being through his son Jesus that he is willing to suffer out of love, out of love for you. You might have the question why, but you can never doubt that God loves you 
and that he is familiar with suffering himself. Now, to put another puzzle piece, to attach another puzzle piece to complete what, the picture of what Paul means by what is lacking, this is where Scripture is always the best explainer of Scripture. And, and the best um, other piece of the puzzle that I could find for this passage is, is in Revelation. And if you go to the very end, the last book of the Bible, where God provides his vision of the future, he leaves us this, this truth to chew on. If you want to see the passage in all its context, uh, go read verses 9 to 11 on your own time. And I'm just going to focus on verse 11. Then they, they being martyrs, those who have suffered for the name of Christ and even uh, died for the name of Christ, then they, these martyrs, were each given a white robe, which represents Christ's righteousness and their righteous deeds in Christ, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. And so we get this notion that God, I don't have time to delve into it fully, but, but if you'll just chew on this first, the introductory thought that God has a certain quota, that there's a certain amount of suffering that even the church has to go through as Christ's representative here on earth, in union with Christ, and, and as humanity in, at large in history is still facing the consequences of the fall, the church has a unique role in living up to some, a certain amount of suffering that has to be complete. And here specifically, God has a certain amount of blood that needs to be shed of the saints who, who sacrificed their lives for the sake of the kingdom. And so Revelation goes on to say, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so there's this Christian understanding as we look to the end time that even the church let me be very clear, the church is not saved by her suffering, but being saved and living out this testimony of Christ in this world, there's still a certain amount of suffering that God has uh, mandated a certain quota that the church has to fill up before we experience full redemption. And so what Paul is saying when he says what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, I believe it's what's, what the Apostle John is unpacking here in Revelation. And he believes and I believe that he believed that he was playing a part in contributing to this quota, if you will, of the church having to suffer a certain amount in God's plan before he brings a new creation. So let me try to bring it to 2019, to you and me today. Let's think about, as Christ followers, what is unique about our suffering, our Christian suffering? Everyone suffers. And we face, at least physically, socially at times, stresses and relationships and so forth, the same suffering as even uh, non-Christians. So how is our suffering unique as a Christ follower? And so I started thinking, I started jotting down some things and, and thought, okay, first, the pursuit of holiness. It creates this inner tension for the Christ follower. Even myself, I, I see some of my friends who haven't placed their faith in Christ, and they have a clear conscience to just spend their money and live their lives, use their bodies in whatever way they please. And, and that's tension for me. I, I can't just freely go that way. And so there's this inner tension, and that's a, a kind of suffering. And then that leads to the sense of inner tension. I'm different from them. I have to live counterculturally. I don't quite fit in this world. And that's a kind of suffering as well. And then that might even lead to being mocked or overlooked because you're different. And so there's a social tension. 
And in fact, I have friends who've been overlooked for promotions because they're not willing to espouse uh, the, the modern values uh, of their company. And then perhaps even some Christians live in certain countries where there's political and religious persecution. But then I got thinking, this is all legitimate suffering, but then I got thinking, well, how's that any different from another religion that is also facing these sort of inner tensions and social persecutions because of what they believe in. Maybe it's not Christianity, but because it's so different from or or not familiar or comfortable with who's around them, they face these things too. So at the end of the day, this itself, this list is not a unique Christian suffering, okay? So let me tell you what is unique. We, the church, we have a suffering Savior. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other myth, every other worldview, every, every other just thought and philosophy, we have a suffering Savior. Sure, certain other myths might have the idea of a suffering Savior, but we have someone who came into history with flesh. God became a human, and in his humanity, he became a suffering Savior. This is the distinct uniqueness of Christianity. And Our suffering is not ultimately a test. Other religions and even evolution, survival of the fittest, suffering is a test. Will you be the fittest? Will you be the one who can make it through your suffering? And suffering is a test of the sincerity and genuineness of your salvation. Now, in Christianity, some of you might be thinking, well, doesn't Peter say, consider it pure joy? Was that James one or the other? And they say similar things. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because it's for the testing and proving of your faith. But it's not that this suffering determines your salvation. That's what other religions say. But what God does, what Christianity purports, is that God uses suffering to mature our faith. It's not so that you become saved. It's so that you can grow through these difficult times into greater and greater Christ-likeness. So suffering for the Christian, what it uniquely is because we have a suffering Savior, is ultimately a fellowship. A fellowship with our suffering Savior. That's why Paul says in another letter in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know the fellowship, the deepest friendship of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's, that's how you know your truest friends. They show up when you're not doing well. Those are your truest friends, the ones that come by your side, that don't forget about you, and they show up by your side when you're not doing well. And what Paul is saying is, I've experienced this ultimate love and encouragement, this suffering together, this suffering Savior that came and suffered for me and loved me so much, he stopped me on the road to Damascus, on my road to rebellion, and he stopped me. And he loved me still, even as a murderer of Christians. And because of that, now I just want to know him more and identify with what he's done for me. And so let me make it practical. When any time you experience some sort of suffering in your life, for myself, I'm not trying to make this a boasting point or anything like that, but but just as, as an example of, of the kind of comfort I experience as a Christ follower, even when I'm sick in bed, I just quickly throw up the thought, this prayer, and it comforts me deeply in those moments when I remember to pray it, Lord, did you suffer infinitely more than this, than what my body's feeling on the cross for me? And that simple, single sentence, that prayer radically shifts my outlook, and it just gives me a comfort 
and a grace to continue to just persevere and, and look to him and long for him for healing and so forth and get back to life and energy and, and to live my life for him and with him. And so in those moments, if you could pray that simple prayer, Lord, did you suffer this much more, infinitely more than what I'm going through for me? And that becomes a fellowship with your suffering Savior. And so Christian suffering is a suffering together, first with Christ and then with the church. Because the undercurrent, the, the good undercurrent in our hearts is that Christ has loved us through his suffering, then it overflows, it translates into us wanting to show up for one another. I love this quote that summarizes the whole thought. Now, it is meaty, but let's try to chew on it together. Christian suffering finds its fulfillment, its perfection, its wholeness in the vindication of Christ's sufferings. Meaning God saw Jesus' suffering and said, well done, my good and faithful son, my good and faithful servant. You are the sinless sacrifice that I acknowledge and I'm receiving it. I'm going to vindicate you by resurrecting you. I'm going to vindicate your sufferings. So our suffering has purpose only if it's in union with Christ's suffering. You see, the world has a wonderful positive message about suffering, right? No pain, no gain, right? Uh, Every oak tree began as a little acorn making it through the storm, right? That's my little message on my pull-up app after I complete a set. There's a voice that says that. And, 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 And so the world has a positive message of suffering, to redeem suffering. So that's, we're not unique that way. But where our suffering is unique is that even our suffering is in union with Christ. And so our suffering doesn't end. The, the goodness of it doesn't end when we die. Even when we, we, by faith, give all our suffering to Christ, then it becomes, by faith, in union with Christ's suffering. And just as God vindicates Christ's suffering, then our suffering gets included in with Christ's. And everything you've gone through in this life will have been worth it. It will truly be worth it. That's the only way it could be worth it ultimately in eternity. And God will reveal to you how he perfects the redemption of your broken story. Just as Christ's righteousness is placed on us. That's what we typically think of, right? I'm saved. It means God looks at me as he, as he looks at his son Jesus because his righteousness is placed on me. Just as Christ's righteousness is placed on us and God sees Christians as Christ's righteousness, so too will God acknowledge Christ's suffering as our suffering and vindicate our suffering on behalf of Christ. And so that's why Paul says we're still on this whole idea that we need encouragement through suffering. So he says, this is why I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me uh, for you. Why? To make the word of God, the gospel, fully known. See, the encouragement that you need The unique encouragement, Christian encouragement that you need in your suffering is that you have a suffering Savior. That's the gospel. You need to fully know that. But Paul, he also wants us to be be encouraged in our preciousness, in our preciousness. For those of us who have tougher exteriors and personalities, I hope that this, this word can melt through that defense and just get to your heart and you'll take this in. And so Paul continues to unpack the mystery this great mystery, and really the mystery is that God is going to reveal himself to us as a suffering savior. The world wasn't looking for that, and they're still confused by that, and that's why many still reject the gospel, because it doesn't compute with their sensibilities. And this beautiful mystery that was hidden and now revealed, so by mystery, it doesn't mean that God wants it to be uh, quizzical and enigmatic forever. 
No, he, he kept it hidden until the right time, and now he's revealed it. And so this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Now notice verse 27. To them God chose. I forgot to do a little underline there under chose. But chose, it carries the notion of you are precious. You are precious. You are the apple of God's eye. His affection is for you. God chose you to make known how great among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. I remember when I first uh, was reading the New Testament seriously, and, and I was younger and came across this word. I was learning French at the same time, too. This is kind of random, funny story, but I thought it was the Gentiles, right? How great among the Gentiles. They're not just gentle people, but these are people, it basically means non-Jewish, people who are outsiders of God's original family. You and I, unless we have Jewish blood in us, we are all Gentiles, whether white or black or Asian, yellow, whatever it might be. We are all Gentiles, and God chose us. He is declaring, you are precious to me. Go back to that moment in, in your emotional history. I'm sure all of us had a, had a moment where we felt marginalized, felt so left out. I remember for me, the first memory that comes to my mind is, in my own home, there was a gathering, and there were other friends, but they were talking behind my back in my own home. And I got wind of this as I was turning the corner. And that, 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 yeah, that's a deep hurt. And, and so imagine feeling left out like that. Whatever it is that you can identify with being left out, that's what you were once. But now God, he chose you. That's how precious you are. That's how much he wants to include you in his family. And so we need to encourage each other and remind each other of our preciousness to God. And a final encouragement, we need encouragement toward maturity. We need encouragement because the, the goal, the the, the destination as the Christ followers that we're meant to grow up, but growing up is hard. Growing up is hard. You, you, we're all grown-up children, and even as adults, we're still growing up. All of us have stuff we're still growing up in, and growing up is hard. Changing as a person, it's one of the hardest things probably in this life, and we need encouragement toward maturity, but what's the power of it? I love what Paul does here. Again, he's so consistent with his message. The power to grow up and mature is not guilt, it's not just setting the bar really high and saying, be like this person. This is what it means to be godly, and so become like this. No, the power for you and I as Christians to keep maturing is to continue to proclaim Christ. And that's why Paul says here, before he talks about maturing, him we proclaim. That's why at Trinity Grace Church, every week we're going to proclaim the gospel somehow to remind you of your preciousness, to remind you of your suffering Savior, to remind you that because of his great love, it's worth it to keep working through your stuff and to keep maturing. As we proclaim Christ, we proclaim his grace. Yes, of course, there's some warning involved, some perhaps even rebuking. We need to feel corrected and convicted of where we fall short and, and explaining and teaching. But the base of it all is proclaiming Jesus and his great love for you. So let me share one thing that's been helpful for me as I've been going through the Freedom Session. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with this diagram. This is called the Serenity Circle. It's just to not become insane in your life and to have some serenity. And basically, the red circle, the bigger circle, is, is full of all the things that you cannot change, all the things that you are out, out of, outside of your control, or perhaps even things within you that just are overwhelming. And even though you need to change in this area of your character, you just feel so helpless. And then within that greater big red circle is a smaller blue circle that things by God's grace, by him giving you the energy, 
you can actually work towards changing these things with God's help. And so the whole point of this is to keep proclaiming the gospel to both of these circles. And have some peace in your, in your mind. Have some sanity. Allow yourself some sanity to recognize, okay, there are things that I just can't change. And so God, I trust it to you. And in the midst of that, I'm going to keep listening to the gospel and find myself in the gospel story. And the things that by the energy you give me, as I grow at your pace for me, I'll delight in those things and walk with you. So let's try to land this plane. How? More practically, how does a Christ follower then encourage the heart? So now I'm, I'm, I want to motivate us to see ourselves as encouragers and to take on this call as a Christ follower to mutually encourage one another, even as you have been encouraged by Christ. And so first, two analogies, two analogies. Uh, even Toronto, during our worst days in the summer, we have smog. But we, we can just complain about the whole environment, the whole atmosphere. But what we need to do is find that specific source of the smog, to find that factory that's producing those emissions or the car. And, and so there's always a specific reason. Let's not get caught up in just the whole aura and then atmosphere and environment. Similarly, if you can imagine a little seedling that makes its way and it's sown into the ground, and then eventually it sprouts and it just wrestles and fights through the soil and eventually comes up and, and it blossoms, its leaves come out. There's a reason for that. It, it didn't do it. That seedling didn't go, I have all the energy within me. And No, it's because there was this greater energy, this sun that was shining its warmth and energy so that that process can begin. So this is what I'm getting at with these two analogies. Here, here's the heart issue. First, let's ask ourselves honestly, Am I an encourager? Or if, if there was a sort of a, a statistical graph of all your words, are, you, are your words majority criticisms, you know, unhelpful sarcasm or un misunderstood sarcasm? How do you use your words and your body language and your tone? Are you overall an encourager? So I'm getting at, are you overall smog? <laughs> and if you are, the real heart issue is what's the factory? What, what's that? specific issue in your heart that's producing all that nastiness? Or are you generally an encourager? Is your bent, your posture, because you, your heart, so the second question here, has my heart awoken to the great encouragement of God in Christ for me? And if your heart is awoken to that, then keep wrestling with all the energy God has given you to, to walk into that encouraging life. So the first call to action here is let's demonstrate Agape love. Agape is, is the word that Paul uses here, skipping to verse 2 here of chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. That's where I'm getting the, the big idea of encouragement today. Paul's main goal is that they would be encouraged by this mystery, encouraged by Paul's suffering together with them. But his main goal is that they would be encouraged in heart. And what it's going to look like is that they're knit together in love. And the, the love there specifically is agape love. It's the suffering Savior love, the sacrificial love that God has demonstrated. And what Paul is envisioning is that this love of the suffering Savior would work itself out, would overflow through them to one another as well. And that's why Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I'm willing to be in prison for you and that you could be encouraged and the gospel could be set forth. And, and myself, I mean, even in my own life, the times where I've been most motivated 
to grow up and change is when there's someone important in my life, someone I respect, whether be it my spouse, my, a teacher, another pastor, a friend, and they demonstrate grace. They demonstrate showing me a love or, or facing their situations with Christ's love. And then that, in a good way, not out of guilt, but that's also God's grace pulling me up towards living in that, uh, aiming for that standard as well. So Paul is saying here, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that I've been trying to model this for you as well, so that your hearts could be encouraged and you could also suffer together and be knit together in this suffering Savior love. Now, just to really make clear that this is the gospel at work, it's gospel power at work. Earlier, before he says that in verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, for this I toil, this is a good toil, a good hard work struggling with all, not Paul's energy, but Christ's energy, right? Struggling with all of Christ's energy. He's saying, I'm that little seedling, and Christ's love is the great, powerful, warm sun that he powerfully, and powerfully here, it's the word that in English we get dynamite. And so it's this notion that the gospel keeps blowing up our old perspectives, our old attitudes, and then replacing it, rebuilding it with his grace. And what we also need to do is not only demonstrate that agape love to one another, Let's continue to richly assure one another with gospel love, with gospel knowledge. Where I get that is Paul says he's doing all this to reach that you, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches, the the uncountable plethora of God's lavish love, the riches of full assurance. And I want you to know specifically the word assurance. What Paul wants for the church is that they would have no doubt, no doubt. I have one friend in my life right now, and uh, he's struggling at times with assurance. And the best thing I can say to him is to look him sincerely into the eyes and say, I want you to know God loves you. I want you to be assured. It doesn't depend on your performance. God loves you in Christ. And we need to richly assure one another of that, and that it's worth it to continue to follow this path, the Christian path, as we live in this world where we feel different. And all this comes back to God's mystery, which is in Christ, to continue to just sit under that and understand that more and unpack it more. And finally, just quickly run through this one. Just like Paul, we need to be present in spirit through affirmation. Remember, Paul's in prison, and he's never met the Colossians. But I have no doubt, I hope you're being encouraged by this letter today, some thousand years later, 2,000 years later, I'm being encouraged. And Paul as well, I believe the Colossians were encouraged. And Paul wasn't there. He never visited them physically. But what he's saying is, though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. See, what really matters is we could be together, but we're not encouraging one another. What's even more powerful is when we're together and we're together in spirit. We're together physically, but we're also together in spirit. And so that old adage rings true that people don't care what you have to say until they know that you care for them. And this is, it couldn't be more true for the Christian that we really identify with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me end with this quote. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, just reading through it again these days, and it's a wonderful allegory of the Christian life. And the character's name, like a good allegory, is Christian. And so this is Christian, and he faces, in part of his journey, this great difficulty. And he sees this hill that is called difficulty. And he says, though the hill is high, I still desire to walk up it. I don't care how difficult it is. 
because I understand that it leads to the way of life. And underneath all this is his belief, his foundation, that there's a suffering Savior for him. Because I understand that it leads to the way of life, cheer up, heart, and don't grow faint or fear, because even if it is difficult, it is better to go this way, because it is the right way. For while the wrong way is easier, it ends in anguish. So I hope you can pray, Lord, use me to encourage hearts, even as you have encouraged me. Amen.